Hello, I'm Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome back to the 905er. At the start of August, we said we'd be taking the month off to regroup, re-energize, and return fresh to talk about what's important to the 905. Instead, we got a federal election. And yes, I admit I falsely predicted that we would not be in one. But I'll save all of that for a future episode. Right now, we want to talk politics. More importantly, what are the big political issues that are important to the 905 region, and what are the main political parties doing or ought to be doing to address them? Off the bat, one of the major issues of this campaign is housing reform, a topic many listeners of this podcast know is a passion of Roland's and my, myself. However, instead of dissecting the party platforms line by line, we thought, let's go above the spin. Let's get right into the topic and figure out what exactly is the issue and what should we be doing about it, regardless of our political affiliation. And this is what we want to do for this election. Not just talk about party platforms and candidates, although we will. We also want to talk about the issues and hopefully educate you and us on what we should be doing and what we should be looking for in terms of leadership on these issues. We are hoping that over time we can educate you to be a little bit more critical of the party's platforms and help you hold these candidates to the fire. In that light, we asked back to the podcast, Mike Moffat. Mike is an economist who has done groundbreaking research into the reasons why housing, not just the 905, but the entire country is currently running wild. He knows what the causes of the rapid price increases and what ought to be done to keep housing affordable. More importantly, we wanted to know why is this such an issue? We hope you have a listen and I hope that you come across a little bit more informed to help you make a better choice in this election. Have a listen. Here we are back to record after we thought we'd have a full month off, but then the government had to go and call an election. So now we're back and we are glad to welcome back to the podcast, Mike Moffat, who is a expert or as close to an expert as we can get on onto the podcast in terms of the housing issue that is becoming one of the main themes of this uh, of this election so we're glad to have mike back to talk about his uh, expertise and his knowledge in this uh in this field and uh mike thanks for uh thanks for coming back to us oh thank you for having me um the reason why uh we want to have you on was of course as i just said housing prices are is crept into the national conversation uh, and seems to be one of the major issues. Every every party has come out with their uh, in their platform with some way to tackle the housing crisis. Rather than go into each platform line by line, because I don't think that's what our listeners really want to hear, what I'd like, rather have is if you could kind of inform our, our listeners in terms of what exactly is going on in, I'm surprising, not just the 905, but the entire country. Like, Can you kind of give us a lay of the land of what we're seeing housing prices happening uh, from Pacific to Atlantic. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we need to start before the pandemic. So let's go to, to about 2016 or so. Uh, you know, Ontario, particularly both 416-905 Toronto, had you know, rather rapid population growth uh, due to a variety of factors, uh, immigration growth, the big boom in international students. We became a much more attractive uh, destination after the election of President Trump. A lot of international talent said, we want to be in Canada instead instead of the US. So we we got an influx of some, you know, really talented 
20 somethings who uh, liked what we had to offer and wanted to stay. And that's, you know, been very good for, for our economy. But what happened was uh, we didn't really change the way or the rate at which we built homes. So starting in about 2016, across Southern Ontario, it seemed that for every, uh, every home that went on the market, there would be two or three bidders, right? Which would, you know, cause these prices to go up and the, you know, whoever, uh, whoever uh, wins the house is usually the whoever can make the highest bid. So, and you know, we 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 saw you know these housing shortages start in Toronto and then propagate out to Kitchener Waterloo. And by about 2017-18, you know, secondary markets like Brantford and Woodstock and even Tilsonburg in London uh, were were absolutely booming. Okay, then we had the pandemic. And for a while, the housing market actually corrected itself a little bit for about six weeks uh, because of a slowdown in international students and uh, international talent that was coming to Canada. But that quickly changed. And the reason why it changed was, first of all, people got stuck in their houses. And oftentimes they're like, well, I don't want to be in this 600 square foot condo if, if I'm working from home anyway. So I want a bigger house. So they go out and start buying houses. Uh, you get uh, uh, people, you know, 30% of the population I call white collar professionals are doing really well financially, don't know where to put their money. So they're like, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy an investment property. I'm going to buy a second home as an investment property. So we've seen the value of everything from like, you know, stocks to Bitcoin to old hockey cards are all going up driven by white collar people with, with too much money. And then finally, this big drop in interest rates allows people to make, make bigger bids, right? Just because they're, they're lowers their monthly payments. So now you've got, instead of three bidders for every home, you've got four or five, and then those increased savings and lower interest rates allows them to make bigger bids. So across Canada, we're seeing prices go up. And, all, and in some markets, in southern Ontario in particular, we're seeing prices go up 40 50%. And we're also seeing prices go up in a lot of markets you wouldn't think would normally be that attractive, like rural New Brunswick or, or Cape Breton out in Nova Scotia. And again, a lot of that's driven by like, well, if I'm working from home, why don't I go out and live by the ocean instead of a, a 600 square foot condo in downtown Toronto? And, you know, there's no reason to be here and I can't go see the Raptors anyway because, you know, they're, they're playing down in Florida. So, so that, you know, it's a long winded answer, but it's basically we had a weird market before the pandemic. And then we just threw gasoline uh, on that fire or at least gasoline was thrown on that fire by, by a number of uh, different factors. Do you think, uh, Mike, that, that this is going to – do you think we're looking at a permanent change? I mean, from what I understand anecdotally from you know, friends and relatives and so on, a lot of people are not going back to work in, in, in the way that they worked before. Um, so this is, do you think this is going away anytime soon or is this, this here for good? Because it's not like things were cheap before. It's, it's not like things were cheap before. And I think, you know, w w one of the, the things I think a lot of people have in the back of their heads is like, well, the only time in a sort of living memory where we've seen anything approaching this was the late 1980s in, 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 the, in the GTA and, and parts of southern Ontario. And that market corrected and it corrected pretty hard. 
So, you know, you go, go, okay, is history going to repeat itself? And are we going to see a, a 30 to 40% drop? Keeping in mind that if prices drop about 30%, that just brings us back to where they were in 2020, which were still really expensive. Uh, but there are reasons to believe that that might not necessarily happen. Uh, you know, our, uh, and in fact, prices could stay at this level or or continue to rise somewhat. They're not going to rise at, at 40% continually, but they still could stay at this level or go up. Reasons being, um, if the international students come back at high rates, we've increased our immigration targets. Interest rates look, they're probably, interest rates are probably going to go up, but they don't look like, you know, if you look at 10, you know, long-term bond yields, they're not projected to go up that fast, that quickly. So a lot of these demand drivers are going to be there. Uh, continue. Now, I think you are going to see, you know, I think there are going to be some permanent changes uh, due to work from home. I think sort of exurban locations, again, like your Brantford's and Tilsenburgers and so on, that price jump is probably permanent, right? A lot of people are going, you know what, I like, I like having this half acre. I'm going to continue working out there. So I think one of the permanent changes we might see is uh, not quite the huge disparity between Toronto prices and, and Woodstock prices or Owen Sound prices or so on, we might see somewhat of a flattening of the market where Toronto remains relatively soft, but all of these other markets continue to, to catch up to it a little bit. On, on that note, what I, I mean, that sounds great if you're living in Toronto, I guess, and you're thinking, okay, my, my housing market's going to kind of be, I can manage that. Um, however, I mean, I have family that lives out near Tilsonburg, Simcoe area. Um, wages and salaries have not met that jump in price and housing pricing. Um, and as you said earlier, um, you know, in rural New Brunswick and Cape Breton and rural Saskatchewan are, are seeing these gigantic increases at far, far outside what normal people would, would, uh, be able to kind of plan or, or, or buffer for it. So that brings me to my, my question of, this sounds like it's it is really a national emergency when you're we, we kind of have this runaway train of housing pricing increases that quite frankly a lot of a lot of people might be priced out of housing affordability can you maybe kind of give us the the bit of the doom and gloom i guess in terms of like why why well i mean this this has become a national like a campaign issue and people are really dissecting the, the party's plans on this and i'm just wondering like Maybe kind of put in, into context for our leaders just why why exactly is it important that we really address this issue? Yeah, so I, I think there's a, a few important things going on. So, so local affordability is a big one. It absolutely is, and and this was an issue again before the pandemic, and, and now more so that a lot of times what's happening in these in these markets in southern Ontario is you get people who are working in the GTA earning GTA type salaries, but then moving to to a Woodstock, to a Tilsonburg, to a Brantford and bidding up house prices, which makes those markets unaffordable to people earning Brantford wages. And, and we're seeing this, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of people who work in Toronto move to London. And but we're also seeing this out movement of Lo in London Sometimes to St. Thomas, which isn't that far away, but now we're seeing families move to Sarnia or or Chatham Kent, which are significantly cheaper, though who knows how long that will last, but then having to commute back to London. 
So we're getting this real disconnect that, that people are, you know, we're getting a higher proportion of the population, again, particularly in southern Ontario, uh, who work in one city uh, and earn wages in one city, but live in another one, which for, for people that work from home, that's not too bad. But a lot of our popular, you know, teachers, nurses or so on, you know, you're still working in a location. So it's increasing commutes, it's putting stresses on the environment. Uh, one of the big concerns that I have, so at SPI, I mean, we're in an environmental economic think tank, um, is that right now housing is getting built uh, where it's being allowed to be built. And right now, the easiest place to build housing is in smaller communities. So you get all of, the, you know, which is which is good for some of those communities. But, you know, we're losing 175 acres of farmland every day to developments uh, we're, uh, you know, we're losing our forested areas. It's like, yes, we have the green belt area, uh, protected, but we still have, uh, a lot of forested areas that are, are becoming developments because it's so hard to build within cities right now. And I do worry in the long run that this is going to put the, the green belt at risk that, you know, we can't price out an entire generation at, at a owning a home. I mean, that's just not politically and economically sustainable. Particularly if we want to build, if we want to maintain the green belt, because after a while, someone, you know, 20 somethings are going to look and say, well, you know, I can't, you know, there's nowhere for me to have a home. Why don't we just build some homes over there where those wetlands are? You know, after a while, the political pressures to start paving over the green belt are just going to be too strong. And I wouldn't blame people. You know, people need somewhere to live and people want to own a house. Uh, as a, a form of security, they don't have to worry about rent evictions, and as a way to you know save for the retirement. So, you know, other generations have been able to do that, and we're going to have to make sure that this generation is able to as well. So, I mean, I guess the, I mean, then there's two related sides to this. There's, there's the affordability of actual home ownership, and then there's the affordability of. Uh, say, I mean, obviously, Joel and I are both based in Burlington. Mm -hmm. uh, well known that anybody under 30 is probably going to have to move to Hamilton. You know, if you're leaving home, if you just come back from college, you're not going to be living in Burlington because there's nowhere to rent. The rent is pricey. Um, and uh, you certainly can't afford to buy anything. Um, so there's that whole side of things too. And, and I guess the, the, the more important part of my question is, is this something that actually, is it simply a supply and demand thing that we just need to free up the market to do its thing? Or is it somewhere where the government can, and should it be the federal government, uh, actually intervene and make a significant change? Yeah, so so, so at, at one level, I mean, it is, it is a supply and demand thing, right? But, but we have to understand that, that, that the housing market is so far from a traditional laissez-faire market. I mean, it is so dictated... Uh, by rules and, and regulate, and it, and it should be. Uh, I mean, we do we need, need to protect the environment, and we need to create affordability. But right now, I would argue we, we have the the worst of of both worlds. Right, I think we have like the the worst of the central planning world, where we have chronic shortages um, and you know people waiting, you know waiting in queues, et cetera, et cetera. But also the worst of the capitalist world, where you have you know a, a elite land owning aristocracy that's getting all the sort of benefits uh, from this. So it, it is right in terms of reform. Um, now there there's a lot that the federal government can do on the sort of um, 
you know, uh, who who's winning winning these bids? Um, you know, what what's the price? What's the price of the winning bid? What's the um, you know what's the transparency around bids and so on? Uh, and that's through uh, you know mortgage stress tests, uh, you know doing things around uh, foreign buyers, vacancy taxes, and and so on. But none of that really changes the dynamic of three uh, you know three buyers for every seller, right? They can they can change what the winning bid is and things around that, but that dynamic they can't directly change. That's mostly. I would say municipal regulations and 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 some provincial rules around it. That said, the one thing that the federal government does have is cash. And cash solves cash solves a lot of problems if you spend it wisely. And then secondly, the the municipalities have a big issue on the horizon that they're painfully aware of is the fact that the the decline in brick and mortar retail due to shop at home, coupled with the decline in commercial real estate due to work at home is really going to stretch municipal budgets. They're in kind of a world of hurt. So what's, um, what the federal government can do is use its spending power to basically buy reforms at the municipal level through either a carrots or sticks approach. And I know we're not going to uh, get too much into policy planks, but one of the things that the, the conservatives talk about in their platform is that the federal government gives a lot of money to municipality for transit projects that they would put in requirements uh, as saying, okay, if we're going to give you this much money for a subway or here in Ottawa, the, the O train, you've got to make sure that you develop medium and high density housing along those lines, or otherwise we're not going to give you that money. So but, but they did you not say, do, sorry, I mean, I, I'm jumping in there just because no, no, a go ahead, point, go ahead. point that struck me on that when I, when I saw that, which is, but don't we already do that? I mean, there's, you know, if the transit, uh, in, again, I'm using Burlington because I live here. In Burlington, is closely tied to where the density has to go. According to now, that's Ontario. I don't know what the other provinces do, but um, you know, can, can saying you've got to build by the by the transit have any effect when we're already building by transit? Well, I would say that we're not necessarily in some areas. I, like again, I can use Ottawa as an example. I mean, we're supposed to be building uh, medium and high density along these lines, but it's just not happening for a variety uh, of reasons in 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 some specific uh, areas. And it's all, you know, I'm sure it's all the stuff you guys have, have talked about before. Some, you know, local opposition, uh, you know, different zoning rules or things like that. So you're right. I mean, we do do this to a, a certain extent. It's just you know. What are you going to make the rules and how stringently are you going to enforce them? Um, you know, how, uh, when are you going to give the money? Do you have to build that housing first before the money flows? So there's a lot of things you can do there. There's also, and that's more of a sticks approach. There's also a carrots approach you can take. You know, one of the things I would love to see is a federal government go to municipalities and say, hey, look, we want we want you to build more medium and high density downtown, but we also recognize that that's going to increase your transit costs, right? Because in part, we're trying to get people to out of their cars and and take take the O train, take the subway, what have you, and that's going to increase your costs. So if you you know if you make that easier to do, and that could be like specific, like we want X number of houses, 
Or it could be things like, we know one of the issues preventing medium and, and high density housing from getting built is parking minimums. So if you take the approach Edmonton has taken to eliminate uh, parking minimums on medium and, and high density, we will compensate you for that with additional gas tax funds or something like that. And I think that would be particularly attractive to, to municipalities where that money that's basically operating capital is not tied to a specific project. So there are, you know, there are some creative uh, levers that the federal government can do. Uh, but it's, you know, basically you're, you're, you're incenting reform you're not actually doing the reforms yourself because you can't. You just don't have uh, you you don't have those pol- those, those really hyper local policy levers at the federal level. Uh, well, we, that's something we talked about just before we hit record. Is I mean, this a federal election? This is a, an issue. Every party has come out with a, a plan one way or the other. However, you know, a lot of this does come down to at the municipal level. You know, we have zoning. Uh, uh, zoning plans, you do have, you know, you have to deal with local opposition to you want to build a condo here or uh, uh, housing development there, et cetera. And there's also the provincial uh, level where you have to take into account, you know, the zoning, like we were talking here in in Ontario, uh, the current provincial government is going on an uh, MZO kick with, you know, minister- ministerial zoning orders to reshape uh, development lands. We're not going to get into that, but I mean, there's a, there's a, when we talk like a national housing strategy, we kind of just stop at the federal level, which as he says, just like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to throw however hundreds of millions of dollars into building affordable housing, which is good. Great. Like that. But is it a strategy? And I guess my question is, you know, why, why is it that we did, we look to the federal government to solve this issue when in my mind, I'm thinking we need to talk to all three and actually have kind of all three come to it. Like, an actual a commission or a summit or something to say, we need agreement, all 10 provinces uh, using their powers to influence the municipalities to say, we need to solve this. Yeah. And I, I don't see that coming forward from the, any federal party in terms of that we're going to take that level of leadership on to get this thing solved. Yeah, so I, so I I, th- I think you're right um, that this is going to take all three levels of government, and and I would say that that this is going to work as well as the weakest link in the chain, right? That that whatever uh, you know, whatever uh, government is level of government is screwing up the policy, that's basically how 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 well this this will work. So. I do, I do think there's a big role for the federal government, but I would hate to be in the situation that people now think, oh, okay, well, this is a federal government issue and we leave the provinces off the hook or we leave municip- you know, municipalities off the hook. I hope, I desperately hope that we are talking about this in the next provincial election. If we're not, something has gone wrong. Um, so, so that's an absolutely. Uh, I think things need to be at the provincial and municipal level, and I I would particularly argue that more so. You know, the municipalities get a lot of attention as they should, but I actually think the province is probably the 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 more important link here. And the reason is that it's hard. You know, there's so much, particularly in Ontario, there's so many spillover effects of what happens in one municipality affects another and, and people moving from one municipality to another because of drive until you qualify, where it's like, okay, people are just moving where housing is cheap. It makes it really hard for municipal government to create affordability in their community. So you guys mentioned Hamilton. Let's suppose Hamilton 
really said, okay, we're going to eliminate minimum parking. We're going to change a bunch of zoning regulations. We're going to do this and that and because we want, we want housing to be affordable in Hamilton. Well, all they're really, you know, that's all helpful and it will help somewhat, but they're also, that's also going to cause a huge influx of families from Burlington and Toronto, right? So it's, uh, you know, you've got all of these sort of spillover effects that no one municipality, other than maybe the city of Toronto itself, can really put a huge dent in this. But where the province can come in is, and this won't be entirely popular with municipalities, but again, it could it could set sort of minimum baselines or it could say, okay, you know what? Um, municipal governments uh, in the GTA, we're going to eliminate, I keep going to parking minimums just because it's an easy one to understand, but we're going to eliminate parking minimums in every municipality within uh, within the Golden Horseshoe. Something like that would make a real, real difference. It, but because it's just so hard to solve this thing at a single municipal level because it just creates so much in and out migration. Just just on that subject of parking minimums, actually, perhaps you could, because, uh, you know, uh, I'm fairly familiar with it. But I'm guessing a lot of our listeners would not be familiar and may think, well, that's crazy. We've got to have places to park, right? Well, how would you eliminate parking minimums and, and hope to have a good result? So, so what is the argument behind that? Uh, and why is it, could it possibly be so transformative? Yeah, absolutely. So, so parking minimums are basically like if you're, if you're building a, you know, a high rider, your medium or density housing sort of downtown, you need to have, you know, X number of parking spaces per units. Right. And, and, and that's a, that's a minimum, right? You can go above that. That's fine. But you're basically mandate to build there's how many parking spaces that they have. Well, what that causes is, is first of all, that you need to build that parking and that takes up space. Uh, but secondly, it also limits, uh, limits the sort of size you can make, make, uh, make these places uh, simply because it's like, okay, well, I I'm limited by the number of parking spaces I can do. But if what we're trying to do, particularly in downtown locations, is incent people to take transit, it's a little bit backwards to say, okay, but yeah, we want everyone to use transit. And you know, we're, we're going to build a, a high rise on a subway line, but we're still going to have the same parking requirements as we would you know, if this was on the outskirts of the city. It simply doesn't make any sense. So what you can do is either reduce or eliminate eliminate those parking minimums. That's not the same thing as saying we're going to eliminate parking. What it's what it's going to say is we're going to let the builders choose, right? And we're going to basically let market forces dictate this. That if if people want parking in their in their condo in their apartment or what have you then that will kind of show up in rents and then people can go, okay, well, am I going to, am I going to, you know, rent or, or own a condo that's slightly cheaper and I don't have parking or am I going to pay for the more expensive one where I'm guaranteed a spot, but ultimately you're letting people choose instead of the government sort of dictating, uh, dictating their parking preferences on everyone. So again, it's, it's really important to understand that, that this is not, this is not banning parking, just the opposite. It's letting, it's, it's letting, uh, the builder of a project or the designer of the project, uh, put in, uh, the level of parking that they, they deem appropriate. It makes me, and this is just a side, a side point. Sorry, Joel. Uh, 
it makes me laugh quite often that that, that, uh, politicians who in other walks of life will be talking about let the market decide when it comes to anything that affects cars suddenly (laughs) have a very socialist (laughs) outlook on life. (laughs) But that's just, yeah, sorry, Joel, you go ahead. I I kind of would take it back a step uh, uh, from parking. Um, And I'm wondering if our, our, the kind of leadership that we should be seeing on this issue, we should be talking a bit about trying to change the dynamic of this conversation. All this, this episode, we've been talking about housing. And I think what that conveys to most people is, you know, four walls and a roof, uh, detached home, white picket fence, you know, the, the stereotypical family dwelling. And we've also been talking about the need to preserve, you know, the green belt and green space. And, what we haven't really talked about really is density yeah. uh, and the need to better utilize the space that we already have. And I'm wondering, should we be talk, shifting the conversation from a housing strategy to more of a home strategy? And by that, I mean, including more rental options and securing uh, rental rights for people who say, I'm not, I might not be able to afford a home, but I need to secure that I have a place to live and to maybe incentivize building more rental options uh, for families uh, and kind of the amenities that go along with that. What, what, what do you think about that as a general concept to helping uh, address this issue? Yeah, I, th- I think I think we need, we need all of that. Uh, and again, this is where I, I have fear that the, these conversations are kind of either or, right? It's like, okay, we do this or, or we do that. And we need both. I mean, we need more. We certainly need more, more purpose-built rentals. Um, you know, and I, I almost don't. You know, I, I think in some issue, I don't think the the issue is whether or not to incent these because a lot of times, you know, the incentives there, right? There's so much market demand out there. The issue is that we can't build these things for a variety, uh, a, a variety of reasons. Again, parking minimums one, but there's a bunch of other things on it. So and I'll give you a density example. So I'm um, I'm in Ottawa right now uh, in a neighborhood called the Glebe. It's kind of like Cabbage Town. It's you know a lot of uh, um, you know, somewhat uh, well-off uh, homeowners who who like things the way they are, and we have rules to sort of protect that. But again, the, these rules are, are kind of perverse, right? So, for instance, we we can only have, or at least in most of the, we can we can only have single detached homes, right? I can't build like if I decided tomorrow that you know what what I would really like to do is is, is tear this thing down and build a duplex. I can't do it, uh, or like I can't. I just can't do it under the zoning regulations. Um, but if in, and even if I wanted to keep it look, you know, and it's about a hundred year old neighborhood. Even if I wanted to keep it like a hundred years old, uh, like looking the same way, I'd place like you couldn't even tell it was a duplex. Doesn't matter. We can't do it because it would change the character of the neighborhood. But on the other hand, if I want to tear this place down and put up a complete eyesore that is not anything looking like any of the buildings around me, I I can do that. Nobody can stop me. So we have these rules designed to keep the character of the neighborhood, but they don't actually do that because they allow you to design things that are completely out of character, but also prevent you from building duplexes and triplexes, which would fit in really well with the neighborhood if they were designed correctly. So it's stuff like that where 
you know, there are these options here. And, you know, we should keep in mind when we talk about densifying our cities, that's, you know, there's all of this missing middle. Like it doesn't have to be single detached homes or, you know, 60, uh, 60 story high rises. There's a lot of things we could be doing and they're just not, they're just not legal. And to go to Roland's point, you know, every, it, and it's a lot of the, you know, sort of small C conservative po- uh, politicians who would say, well, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, this is my land. Like, you, you know, but you, you know, you're saying, you're saying that no government should be dictating all of this. So it, it does create some really weird political dynamics. And it, it's more sort of the, conservatism in this, in the sense of not changing things rather than conservatism and yeah. sort of giving people the liberty to, to, to make the choices that, that make sense for them. And, and I feel part of the problem with, and I hate, I have a thing about the word nimbyism, which people know me not about, but I feel that in, in a lot of ways we have, des- we have created a situation that encourages nimbyism because we said, okay, downtown density. Yeah. Everybody's in favor of it. You won't find any politician who is officially against it or very few uh, however we've said this is where we want people to build but this area over here which is right next door which is all lawns and dog walking um is completely untouchable still um you know and if it's if the street is built and the, the, then the street is built and that's the maximum number. and like you say i mean on my street since i moved in there's been a huge amount of development happening but the number of people living on the street is the same or possibly lower than it was the year I came here. Um, but the houses are twice as big. <laughs> uh, and that seems to me, yeah, you know, an absolute core foundational problem that we have with the way zoning works in, uh, well, the whole of North America, really. I mean, it's, it's you know, we're, we're, we're putting the pressure, you know, the, the, incentive, the, the objectives are good, intensification, right more transit right all these things are good but we're putting so much pressure on relatively small areas that we're getting kickback and resistance when there's all these other areas what we're saying no they're they're off limits Uh, and uh yeah it's it's i'd like to see people start talking about that in a much more uh serious fashion that wasn't a question that was just me uh (laughs) (laughs) i do this (laughs) i can say i agree i i I absolutely agree yeah, um, I'm. I'm seeing that we're coming up on the on the half hour mark. I'm gonna say we're probably gonna wrap it up uh, in a couple minutes because we've taken up a well half hour of your time so far, Mike. We very much appreciate it. But I, I do want to leave you with the last uh, last word uh, because the goal of this po- this episode was to educate and inform viewers free from party platforms uh, and whatnot. And I, I guess. If you, you may put on your your professor hat a bit, and if uh, if there's somebody listening and they're go- they're going to be going to an all candidates meeting uh, in the coming weeks, and this is an issue that is really passionate about, and they really want this to be addressed, may, can you maybe give uh, give them some pointers about what they should be not asking of their of the candidates, but maybe what what should they be he- wanting wanting to hear from their candidates uh, when the answers are are given. Yeah, well, I, I think the big thing I would ask about is the sort of supply issue. That it's it's really easy to come up with sort of tax credits to incent things, but you know, questions around. Well, look in in my neighborhood that there are three or five or or however many bidders for every house, and the, the houses are going fifteen to twenty percent over asking because there's so shortage. What are you going to do? to increase the amount of housing in our community, but do so in a way that's climate friendly and family friendly. 
because that's because that's the important thing as well. We're like we're not, you know, I'm certainly not advocating that we just pave over the province and create sprawl, and I'm certainly not advocating that the only thing we build is 600 square foot condos that you can't raise a family in. I think we need some of those because we have a lot of 20 somethings and we have a lot of um, retired people who often like those as options. But we need places that are are climate friendly and that you would actually want to raise a family in. So that would be the big thing I would be pressing on them. Like, how are we going to ensure we have those things to keep up with uh, Ontario or, or Canada's uh, growing population? Good to hear. Well, I think we'll leave it at that for uh, for this week, Mike. Um, so thank you very much, Mike, for coming on and. We will be probably following up on this. I bet we'll have you on for the next provincial election, whenever that. Um, I Wait, is that? I think we're May twenty twenty two. Yeah, so I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks so okay. much. Thank you. Great, thank you. That's it for this episode of the Nine Hundred Fiver. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>